0: Well, good morning, everybody. He has risen. He has risen Amen to that. Isn't it good to be all together here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord? And isn't it? I mean, it's been three almost three years since we've been able to be here to do this. And I would also say, isn't it good to be indoors this year? Yeah. Uh, in case you missed it, last year we celebrated Easter outdoors in a blizzard so whose great idea was that (laughs) if you have your bibles i would love it if you would take them out and open to the gospel of mark we're in chapter 16 this morning and to start things off i want to ask you to think about some great cliffhangers of movie and tv history here especially over the last 50 years 50 years. We're going all the way back to the 80s on this one. Okay? Some of you weren't there, I know that. Some of you peaked in the 80s, and it's been all downhill since then. So we're looking at five decades of cliffhangers in TV and film, and um, just to kind of try to pick one good one from each decade. So the first one, we're going back to the 80s, like I said. You might think in your mind, what's a great cliffhanger from the 80's for movie and TV history? I'll give you a hint, Uh, it was a TV show, I'll give you another hint, it took place in Texas, you got it now, right? It is Dallas, who shot JR, right? Now some of you are thinking, well Eric can't possibly be old enough to have watched Dallas. Well, whoops! you'd be wrong for one thing. But also, I would tell you, um, I did watch it. I was six years old at the time. I wasn't allowed to watch it. (laughs) But as a six-year-old, what I discovered was that my parents watched it. And so I could hear it on our television set. And I discovered that if I stood up on my bed and looked out my window into the neighbor's living room, they watched Dallas. (laughs) So I could watch it on their set and hear it on ours. (laughs) So I know who killed Jr. (laughs) The second one uh, I would bring up this morning. This is from the 90s. I'll give you another hint. It's a TV show. You're going to be amazed at the, the gap, though, from the 80s to the 90s. But this particular show, Friends. Fourth season. It was the wedding when Ross is marrying Emily. And in his vows says... I take you, Rachel, a bad move at any time to call your bride or soon-to-be bride by your ex-girlfriend's name. And then it was just over, season over. Another one, this one's particularly important for Amy and me. This was date night TV for us. We didn't miss it for for weeks or even for years. Again, this was a TV show. This is in the aughts or whatever, the oh-somethings, whatever you want to call them. Also season four. There's something about season four and cliffhangers. This one was West Wing. Zoe Bartlett is missing. I have a dead agent on the scene, and Zoe Bartlett is missing. End of season. That was it. And, and we had to wait for four months to figure out what happened to Zoe. And I think about that. I think these kids today have no idea, right? They've got Hulu and Netflix and streaming and whatnot. And they can binge watch a a whole series in a weekend. We had to wait four months to figure out these kinds of things. Two more here. One, this one is from the 2010s or from the teens, whatever you want to call them. And this is a movie this time. And I bet you will get this one. The hint is it's Marvel. You probably have this one. This would be Infinity War, right? One of the great cliffhangers, and movie history. There are stories of people sitting in the theater for hours afterwards, still crying, feeling like they had lost friends, right? One more, the last one, this is 2020s. I'm certain you haven't heard of this one yet. This is a reality show, and the working title hasn't even dropped yet. The working title for it is this how long will it take for Pastor Eric to get back at these people who brought this cat into my office on April Fool's Day? Yeah. Cliff jumper right there, what we have. And I think they thought that this creature and I might identify with one another because it has the same haircut that I have. They would be wrong, however, I do like his hoodie, and I particularly like that that hoodie is covering its shame, so that's a cliff jumper yet to be sorted out. You'll have to wait for that one. Well, in 8065, around the time that the evangelist Mark completed his gospel on the account of the life of Jesus Christ and it gets circulated to persecuted Christians in the region, and especially in Rome, it could be considered one of the great cliffhangers being circulated in its day. And it has everything to do with how his gospel ends. Uh, in fact, it's, it's a troubling end for many people. And so we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're actually going to start at the end of our passage, and then we're going to work our way back there from the beginning. Because believe it or not, there's actually some debate, quite a lot of debate, about where the Gospel of Mark actually ends. And so there's two prominent theories on this, and they're brilliantly named the short version and the long version. Okay, The long version basically asserts that uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, ends at chapter 16, verse 20. And the short version, that theory asserts that it ends at chapter 16, verse 20 verse 8. And this might surprise you, but I actually hold to the short version theory of Mark's gospel, that it ends abruptly at verse 8. So some of you are sitting here thinking, good, short version, that sounds like a shorter sermon. I like the sound of that. And if you're thinking that, that means you're new, and you can ask around, and they'll tell you otherwise. So I don't actually believe that verses 9 through 20 are actually a part of Scripture. Scripture. And you can see in your own Bible, if you can see your own Bible in the lower light here, you can see that there's an editorial note that says the earliest manuscripts don't contain these verses. And more than that, when you just look at the language itself, particularly in the original Greek, you can see that it's just not Mark's vocabulary. It's not Mark's style. It doesn't sound like him. And so most scholars basically agree that this is probably like a second century uh, edition and there's different theories as to why it might have been added and I won't get into that this morning. But all of this to say that I believe the gospel of Mark ends abruptly at verse eight and it's meant to be a cliffhanger for a reason. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that sparks some questions, doesn't it? We might ask ourselves, what would cause this kind of fear and bewilderment? What would cause these women to want to flee? What is it that they're keeping quiet about? Why, why would Mark end so abruptly on this when there's so much more to tell, right? So those are all great questions, and I appreciate you asking them for me this morning. So now let's work our way from the beginning to that end verse. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee there you will see him just as he told you trembling and bewildered the women went out and fled from the tomb they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid mark's account of the resurrection is just 8 verses long that's it it's it's the shortest of all of the gospel writers And I want to just work through this and highlight sort of three features of his account, or maybe three plot points, if you will, so that we can try to recognize what it is that Mark is attempting to accomplish in his telling of the resurrection. And So the first thing I would try to highlight here is this. We we recognize the devotion of these women. The Jewish Sabbath ends at sunset. So around 6 p.m., these women who loved Jesus... Who followed him, who heard his teaching, at the first chance of opportunity, they go and purchase spices with which they can anoint his body. This is interesting, too, because we're told in the Gospel of John that Nicodemus, the religious leader who took Jesus' body down from the cross and along with Joseph of Arimathea put him in the tomb, that they had already anointed his body with linens and with over 70 pounds of aloe and spices. And John's account notes that the women saw this. In other words, that the women are doing this is not because there is an unfinished task. It's because there is an unfinished aspect of their own devotion and their own opportunity to show their affection for Christ. They made their purchase at the earliest opportunity. They made their way to the tomb At the earliest opportunity, so again, at the earliest opportunity, they could anoint their Lord. And then Mark records even a little detail of their discussion along the way. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Just a minor detail, right? I think it's interesting, though, because one of the things that this question among them shows us is they haven't even worked out all the logistics yet. But their devotion is driving them to the tomb anyways. They'll take care of the details later, but they're on their way. So we see the devotion of these women. Secondly, just, we'll just acknowledge the discovery of the empty tomb, right? Uh, the other gospel accounts provide so much more by way of evidence and details and testimonies and post-resurrection appearances, all of which help to authenticate the historical reliability of the resurrection. And you can imagine, as a preacher at Easter time, you want to grab up all of those things. It's tempting to go into all of those other gospels and import them and stack up the evidence and make a case and make a proof. But that's not Mark's purpose. That's not Mark's intent. He is not trying to prove something. Mark is making a point to those who already believe in the resurrection. Mark's not writing to skeptics. He's writing to Christians. He's not trying to persuade someone to believe in something that they don't already believe in. He is reminding them of what they already know to be true and what they already celebrate. So I'm going to resist the temptation, and we're going to stay with Mark. We're going to stay with his narrative, and we're going to let Mark accomplish his purposes with his gospel. So just the matter-of-fact telling here is this. The stone was rolled away. The body of Jesus is gone. The angel declared that he is risen and that they might go into Galilee and see him there. He's already going ahead of them, and they are to tell the other disciples. So what's surprising here, or what ought to surprise us, is the reaction of these women. If you've been uh, following with us through the Gospel of Mark these last nine months, you know that Jesus has predicted his betrayal on three separate occasions explicitly. These disciples have heard this, and these women who followed him and loved him and heard his teachings, they know this. In other words, this shouldn't come as a shock to them. Rather, this should be the moment of their extreme excitement, We would expect to hear from them, he did it. He did exactly what he said he would do. Against all of the doubts, against all odds, he really did it. We've already seen their devotion on display, right? These are not apathetic women. Early as possible, they made the purchases. We know it's a redundant anointing, so great is their love for him. We know as early as possible, at daybreak, they head for the tomb. We know that there's even a disregard for some of the logistics. We'll figure it out as we get there. So to be told by the angel that he is risen, go and tell the others. And you're going to get to see him again in Galilee. Again, we would expect celebration and rejoicing and a quick carrying out of the angelic orders. But instead, Mark records for his audience, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Season over, right? Roll credits. That's a cliffhanger, right? That's a cliffhanger. If we're in the movie theater and that's how it ends, we're bothered by that, right? It's unsatisfying. Where's our resolution here? I mean, we would think to ourselves, well, apparently there's going to be a sequel. How long until Mark 2 comes out, right? That's what we'd be wondering. Because it can't end like this. It can't end like that. Jesus has risen from the dead. And these devoted women have got to do better than this. Again, over the past nine months studying the gospel of Mark, you would know by now that the gospel is really arranged around two questions. Chapters 1 through 8 basically ask the question, who is Jesus? And then chapters 9 through 16 ask the question, what does discipleship to him look like? So now, here, we come to the crowning moment of his life, the resurrection of the dead. Th- this is the moment that brings the definitive answer to both of those questions. Who is Jesus? He is God the Son the Savior of the world. What does discipleship to him look like? It should be courageous, resilient, and steadfast. But instead we get trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that brings us to our third point. We should really ponder the decision of the women here to effectively run and hide. Friends, the gospel of Mark is written with this raw edge, this lack of resolution, this cliffhanger ending purposefully to light a fire under timid Christians. Remember, Mark is writing his gospel primarily to persecuted Christians in the region and in Rome, where the emperor Nero is killing them for sport. The temptation, understandably, for Christians is to go underground, to keep quiet, to keep your life and your convictions to yourself, not to mention Jesus, not to mention the resurrection, not to mention what he has done for mankind, but to hunker down. But friends, this is precisely what disciples of Jesus cannot do. We cannot be trembling and bewildered because we have a resurrected Lord. We can't flee into enclaves of safety because we have a resurrected Lord. We cannot keep quiet about Jesus and about his work on the cross and about his resurrection from the dead. We have a resurrected Lord. We can't hunker down in fear of cultural headwinds because we have a resurrected Lord. Again, Mark's gospel, his purpose is not to make the resurrection believable. Mark is trying to make timid discipleship unthinkable. That's his intention. He's trying to breathe courage and life and passion and vitality into persecuted Christians. Mark's cliffhanger account here, his ending, is meant to provoke these weary Christians To be resilient in their faith, to be confident in their beliefs, and to be unwavering in their witness. He means for his audience to hear the story again and hear these ladies' reaction and to almost say out loud, wait a minute, they can't do that. That response is unacceptable. And then to hear their critical voice boomerang back to point at themselves, wait a minute, I can't do that. That response is unacceptable. Christians, Mark's gospel is written to you. It's written to you to embolden you, to empower you, to encourage you, even to provoke you to get on with bold and robust discipleship to Jesus. We're reminded here, we do not follow a dead teacher. We follow a risen Savior. Mark's gospel is not trying to provide a defense for the resurrection. Again, he's trying to make timid Christianity undefensible. The resurrection is the pivotal moment in human history. It shows that there is one who creates life, controls life, and has the power over life and death. It shows that the revelation of Moses and the prophets, which pointed to him, were divine, of divine origin and true. It shows that Jesus is the Son of God, very God of very God, as the Creed says. It shows that God so loved us that he arranged for our rescue at great expense to himself. It shows that not only was our sin destroyed on the cross, But the sting of death is destroyed as well. It shows that our death, which is coming for all of us, but for those who have taken refuge in Christ, death is nothing to fear. It is but a transition, maybe even a promotion, into eternal life with our Lord. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. We're meant to be provoked by that. And so Christian, I ask you, is that going to be your move? Is that going to be your way? Is that going to be your response to the resurrection? Thankfully, the women here would find their voice. They would go and tell the other disciples eventually, and Peter. And they would go on to see Jesus in his resurrected body. And their fear would give way to faith and radical discipleship, and proclamation of Christ's resurrection. And I would say, Christian, may that be our story. May that be our witness. Again, Peter would go on years later, and he would write these beautiful words in his epistle. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Christian, this morning the challenge is to you to live in light of the resurrection with great boldness that it ought to give us. And if you're here this morning and you have never crossed the line of faith, you've never taken refuge in Christ or prayed asking that his sacrifice and the value of his resurrection would be applied to you, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now so that you too can live in this boldness that Christ gives to us. So if that's something you want to do, I'm just going to offer a prayer right where you are. Just say it back to the Lord and you can know that your sins were killed on the cross and that your death is just a transition into eternal life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus for the love which motivated your sending him so that mankind's sin could be paid for and penalized in him. I pray, Lord, um, that this morning that you would forgive me of my sins. I want to trust in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I want to live with the confidence that his resurrection gives to me to live. So, Heavenly Father, apply the sacrifice of Christ to me for forgiveness and justification and for a life to live for you. For we give you praise and glory and honor. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.